Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. <coughs> the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord.
wonderfully flavoured service that we have today, it would be remiss of me not to properly greet you with a Swahili uh, exclamation, which you can simply respond to by saying Amen. And I'm muted. Oh, there we are. Can you all hear me now? Fantastic. So, I'm going to say to you, Buana Asifiwe, and you're going to reply, Amen. Amen. Oh, you've already done it, haven't you? Let's do it once more time. Buana Asifiwe. Which in English is, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. I wonder, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? What's the most nerve-wracking thing that you've been asked to do? Maybe eating something exotic, like some of those celebrities in uh, Australia right now. Maybe running a marathon. Maybe standing up here and preaching. (laughs) Or giving us public speech to lots of people, if that's something that uh, particularly fills you with fear. For me, one of the most nerve-wracking experiences of my life was in one balmy summer's day in the summer of 1987 with uh, an engine still running and uh, my instructor sitting next to me in the small aircraft said, now then Rachel, go and do one circuit on your own and don't mess up. I was 17, uh, hadn't yet learned to drive, I'd only just started shaving, (laughs) and here I was about to take a flying machine into the air and hopefully land it again uh, safely. (laughs) And of course, despite all the training that I'd had in the the weeks before, my heart was pumping. I could feel um, that thudding feeling in your ears, if you've ever had that, and the adrenaline coursing through your brains. So I grabbed my checklist. (laughs) <laughs> and try to remember, okay, throttle mixture, fuel flaps, oh, radio check, okay. Now, it's the most tricky bit. Pilots will tell you that the most important thing is to be confident on the radio. So, Southern Tower, go, Golf Oscar Bravo, Tango, ready for departure, runway 24. Oh, come on, Steve, got to get a grip. Golf Oscar Tango, uh, Cliff, take off, runway 24. Oh, Roger, cliff takeoff. <laughs> the next six minutes, I have to admit, were a bit of a blur. I don't remember much about it other than, strangely, this overwhelming desire I had to hum to myself the ride of the Valkyries. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, needless to say, um, I, it seemed, seemed to take about an hour, but those six minutes, um, uh, they didn't fly by, but I did land safely. Um, uh, after an uneventful circuit. Um, pilots, you m- may have heard the story, the, the saying that uh, any landing you can walk away from is a good one. And there's a caveat to that, which is or a, an adjunct to that, every landing that you can walk away from and use the aircraft again is an excellent one. Um, so uh, fortunately, um, my landing was excellent in the sense that you could use the aircraft again, although I think my instructor had other uh, thoughts as he saw me careering past. I'd set the power too high because with him on board, I would have been heavy, but of course he wasn't there, so I was far too light. I floated down the runway and almost did one of those Tom Cruise, you know, buzzing the tower, uh, completely unintentionally. Anyway, all, all went well, and that was the first of many, many flying stories, which I won't bore you with uh, too many more. Let's get back onto the ground and to the road to Damascus. And uh, one of the things I want to look at this morning is how Ananias coped with the difficult job, actually, that that, that God had him to do. So we're on the way to Damascus and traveling with Saul, 
Just two chapters earlier in Acts, we read that Saul was one of the witnesses to Stephen being martyred and was still uttering threats with every breath. And as we read, um, he'd requested a letter from the high priest to pursue followers of the way, both men and women. Now, this term followers of the way is uniquely described in Acts. We see it in a few other um, chapters in chapter 18 and 19. But it's one of the references to those who follow Christ, those who are Christians. Damascus was a key city um, in, in, in many ways. Um, it uh, was about 150 miles north of Jerusalem um, and uh, was really the gateway to the north, so the HS2 <laughs> of first century Palestine in some ways. It was strategic, and Paul and the high priest knew that it would be strategic to go after the Christians in Damascus in order to cut that off before it took root. Fortunately, God also had a strategy, and he'd placed his troops in Damascus too, in particular Ananias. So we're on the road to Damascus, and we read in verse 3, a light from heaven shone down around Saul, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul answers, who are you, Lord? Now, by the way that Saul answers this, it doesn't necessarily infer that he knew the identity of the speaker. The term Lord was just a term for reverentially addressing a heavenly uh, figure. But either way, whether Paul knew or not, the, rece- the reply he then received was pretty emphatic, wasn't it? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. So imagine Saul had the spiritual scales metaphorically fall from his eyes, even as they manifest themselves physically to blind him. He suddenly comes to the truth that Jesus is risen, the followers of the way that he's been persecuting are vindicated, and now Saul is in deep trouble. His misplaced zeal for God in attacking the followers of the way was actually an attack on the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, the text doesn't tell us very much about the spiritual and emotional journey that Saul then went on for those three days when he fasted, but there was no doubt from what we read in the rest of Acts and from his letters that Saul's life was utterly and completely transformed. Because anyone who truly encounters the risen Jesus will be transformed. And for those who might recall Tim's sermon from last week, the God of undeserved kindness can call even the worst of sinners, as Paul referred to himself, of course, in 1 Timothy, to do great things for God. Let me read that again. For those, the God of undeserved kindness can call even the worst of sinners to do great things for God. There is no life that Christ can't transform. Now, the nature of Saul's calling was unique in that God had chosen him to be the instrument to take the message to the Gentiles and the kings and the people of Israel. But did you notice the other actors in the story? Saul's companions, in some translations of the Bible it says companions. We don't know if they came with him from Jerusalem, if they were part of his posse perhaps, but we might assume that they were fully on board with his original mission to persecute the followers of the way. Now, in verse 7, we read that these companions heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Clearly, something big had happened. We don't know whether they understood the words, but the voice 
the calling wasn't directed to them, was it? But beyond that, also the manner of Saul's calling was unique. It was tailor-made. Despite his companions being nearby, only he got the message. Um, The calling was, at least initially, unique to Saul. Here's another unique call. Uh, Katie's now going to tell us um, one of her testimony points of how she was called. Good morning, everybody. When I was um, 18, um, I prepared to take a gap year before going to university, and I was going to go to Kenya with Africa Inland Mission as a volunteer. Um, There were a group of 19 of us, and as our orientation, our preparation for going to Kenya, we joined in with a group of longer-term AIM missionaries who were also going to other parts of the continent. And we had some orientation sessions on our own and some together with the whole group of missionaries. And one of those meetings was with a couple called the Websters who were from New Zealand originally, uh, Ben and Winsom. They had had um, a full career in the uh, New Zealand diplomatic service and then retiring from that had become missionaries themselves with AIM. Um, And they were serving in Chad. That was quite a new ministry that um, AIM had started, um, a very difficult place to be. So the Websters did a presentation. Um, This is back a long time ago, so there were no um, beamers like we have now to to do those kind of presentations. It was just um, OHPs and slides. The slides were a lot of pictures of dust, um, and a few camels, and, uh, and not much else. And, uh, and so we all uh, attended this meeting, listened to the Webster's presentation, and then we, the 19 volunteers, we took off to do something else. We came out of the meeting, and, and I was saying, that was amazing. Wasn't that incredible? That's just, it's just amazing. I just, I have to go to Chad. I need to go there. And 18 other people looked at me and said, that was the most boring thing we've ever heard. What are you talking about? And I was saying, what are you talking about? Doesn't, doesn't everybody now want to go to Chad? Uh, no. So um, that, but that calling, that um, what I felt stirred in my heart that day stayed with me, improbable as it was. Um, when Steve and I got married, I shared with him that I felt called to Chad and felt very certain that that I would get there one day. Graciously, he kind of agreed that perhaps he would be part of that too. Um, Throughout our our missionary career, Chad came up a few times, um, and the first few times it just clearly wasn't right, but I still felt very, very sure that that it was something that God had really put on my heart. And as uh, some of you know, in 2019, that was the place that God took us, and we were very privileged to serve there for two and a half years. So that was in total um, 29 years from that initial calling to actually um, going and serving. So, yeah, uh, calls are unique, and God works them out in his own time. So when God calls us to do something, we shouldn't be surprised if others don't resonate with that calling or if they just don't get it. That's part of the rich tapestry of God's mission. And remember, it's God's mission. Um, And that's represented brilliantly in the huge variety of ministries that we've already seen on the videos this morning and that we know about. Some of you were here yesterday afternoon for the missions fair. Um, All the wonderful ways um, that God is at work 
and that our church is involved. So the elements of God's mission that he has prepared for each of you are unique to you. God might call each of us uniquely to be part of his mission, although the thing in common is that it's his mission. So now we come to Ananias, who was uniquely placed to minister to Saul. So he was a believer in Damascus. In verse 10, we hear the Lord spoke to him in a vision saying, Ananias, a little bit like my radio call, Ananias. Ananias replies, yes, Lord. I don't know if you noticed, instead of a question mark at the end on that verse, it's actually an exclamation mark. So Ananias isn't going, yes, Lord. He's saying, yes, Lord. He's ready for what the Lord's saying to him. It's almost an echo of Samuel that we've read about. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. It's so neat that God actually tells both men what's going to happen next, down to the last detail. Now, if you lived in Damascus, you'd know Straight Street, um, just as if you live in Coombe Down, you know the Furs. It was a bit like God saying, right, I want you to go to the Furs, you're going to meet somebody there, and uh, this is what I want you to tell them. It was a real place, Straight Street, and God is in the detail. So Ananias already knows about Saul and his terrible deeds, we read. Um, He voices his concerns to the Lord, but the Lord says, go. And as well as as revealing to Ananias Saul's mission uh, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he also reminds Ananias or tells him uh, that he's going to inform Saul how much Saul will suffer. Now, despite this Lord's very clear command, Ananias may still have been a little nervous, I think, about approaching Saul, given his reputation, given what happened to Stephen, given the letter that was still in Saul's pocket um, to persecute. Sometimes it does take obedience and a little courage, more than a little courage, to follow the Lord's calling. So Ananias goes and finds Saul. In verse 17, he lays his hands on him and he says, Brother Saul. That's amazing. (laughs) Given given the context, um, those two very simple words, brother Saul. Saul. That's spine tingling. And then he goes on to say, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What a moment that must have been for both of them. As well as being restorative, there was a a sense of loving words between Ananias and Saul and a touch. That reminded me of a truth that perhaps we're in grave danger these days of forgetting, that in all our connected, screen-centric, 24-7 news live, it's the personal and physical connections that often matter the most. Now, Zoom is great and has been a wonderful resource over the last few years and continues to be so for the prayer meetings that we've been hearing about that happen every week. During lockdown, when Katie and I were in Chad, it was wonderful. We could join with all of you at Holy Trinity. And even while we were separated and Katie was stuck somewhere and I was stuck somewhere else, we could still join together uh, on a Sunday morning. We were also able to be part of our home group, amazingly. Something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Thank you, by the way. Thank you to all of those who made that happen and that continue to make that happen. Um, 
you have our thanks, and I'm sure all the missionaries uh, around the world that have tuned in, uh, and anyone perhaps who's watching at home would also want to give you their thanks for that. But ultimately, as Wordsworth said of the Industrial Revolution in his famous poem, The World is Too Much With Us, that the personal, real connections sometimes have suffered. His famous poem spoke more of the demise of our appreciation of nature due to the onset of the Industrial Revolution. I'd ask if you wanted to dig it out and read it. The world is too much with us. But we should also lament and seek to reverse the similar demise that I think we've had of our human interactions in, in this so-called connected age and make sure that we find ways to stay connected with people personally. Here's a little illustration for you. On Thursday this week, I was contemplating what I was going to say in this sermon as I was waiting for a bus to go to work. It was going to be a difficult work day for several reasons. I was also waiting on a very important phone call related to another matter outside of my current job. I'd read my daily devotional, I'd listened to the radio, I'd pondered some things in the shower, as many of us do, I'd read the news on my phone. All of these were pathways through which God could have spoken to me, and sometimes he does, of course. However, on this particular morning, as I was waiting for the bus, with all these tangled thoughts running through my head, a car waiting in the queue was there, and the car window wound down, and a friend from church simply said to me, in a clear voice, and a very deliberate voice, have a good day. Not a super prophetic word, but just what I needed to hear that morning. My friend was uniquely placed to speak to me at that bus stop, and I heard God's voice in those words. You see, God might choose to blind us sometimes with his brilliant light, like Paul, but at other times, he might just show us enough of his brilliance to encourage our faith and keep us going. Just enough of that chink of God's light. Not only do those four little words give me this brilliant sermon illustration to share with you this morning of how God breaks through into our daily lives, but it also reminds me of how when we're attentive to his spirit, like I believe my friend was that morning, God gives us the words and the deeds to encourage and show love to others. Sometimes, just when they're needed. They don't need to be magic words either. Have a good day. I expect many of us have had examples, can share examples of when we feel that we've had a nudge, when we feel that maybe God has put us in a right place at the right time to say something or to do something. Because as God's people, each of us may be uniquely placed to help to minister, to love others. God with skin on. The third thing I want to very briefly mention is about equipping, about being uniquely equipped. It was a third part of Saul's calling. The Lord had clearly equipped him for the job, even though at the time up to his conversion, he didn't know it. From the rest of Acts and from all the letters that he wrote in the New Testament, it's clear that God was uniquely equipped as a Roman citizen, as a gifted orator, as a Jewish scholar. And although in Philippians 3, you might remember, Saul counts all these things as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, 
we see that these skills and abilities that God had already given him were greatly used in his ministry. And so it is with our skills and abilities. God may equip us according to his purpose in glorious diversity. I learned to fly when I was 17 years old, as I said, the same year I became a Christian. And I didn't know at the time, but that was eventually going to lead to me becoming a mission pilot, um, serving with MAF, as you all know, um, for the last 10 years. As Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, in fact, God has placed all the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Now I'm going to hand over to Katie, and she's going to share another quick story about equipping. When we went to Kenya with MAF um, in 2012, um, at that point I had um, worked quite hard to regain my midwifery qualification, which had lapsed. Um, and I really felt that that's what I was going to use um, in Kenya when we were there. And I had spent at least six months trying to find um, something to do, somewhere that I could fit in and I had really had no joy and was pretty much at the point of thinking actually maybe um, I, I was wrong or that's not what God wanted me to use um, in Kenya at that time. We came back to the UK for a home assignment and as part of that we visited the MAF offices and when we were there um, one of the communications team had a piece of paper to give to Steve which she was saying could you take this back to the Kenya program we need someone to do communications and this is a description of the job so as the paper passed me I took it and read it and uh, and said oh oh I think maybe maybe I could do that looking at, uh, at what was required, which was mostly um, interviewing passengers on our flights, writing up stories, going on the flights and taking photographs. Um, those are things that I loved to do as uh, hobbies, but hadn't sort of considered how I might be able to use them in God's service. Um, and it turned out that I was able to be the communications officer, and so that's what I did for the rest of our time with MAF in Kenya and in Chad. We're not with MAF anymore, but God has provided another amazing communications job that I do now for a Christian charity that works in Ukraine. So having not thought that that was how it was going to go, that was how God had equipped me for the role, and so that communications adventure continues for me. So you see, sometimes God equips his people even before they know him. And often before we know all the details of God's mission for us. It may be that other people identify the gifts and skills in us. Actually, Katie's story shows how she was uniquely called. Um, with her love of photography from when she was very small, um, um, developing her own black and white photos, um, up, uh, up in her bedroom, and uh, her love of creative writing, submitting poems for publication, some of which I think were published, I don't know. But anyway, being uniquely placed and uniquely equipped to be a communications person. And it's the same for each of us here at Holy Trinity. Whatever we're involved in, whichever of the ministries that you've perhaps uh, supported, the ones that you regularly pray for, perhaps places that you even visited, people that you know well, If you have felt a nudge last week when Tim was preaching 
Maybe you felt a nudge this week also about one of the areas of ministry, um, one of the wonderful uh, endeavors that, that, we've, that, that, we, that, that we support as a church. That nudge might be personal, might be unique to you. Only you may be feeling it. It might be unique to your situation and you're ideally placed to respond. And that nudge might just be the impetus that you need to start using gifts and skills that you have in a new way for God. It does require discernment. It requires obedience. And it may require a little courage. But we can take heart that the Holy Spirit was not unique to Saul and Ananias, but he is alive, active, and among us to empower us in this. Let's just bow our heads. I will close with a prayer. Lord, please reveal to me, to us, how you've uniquely called us to be part of your mission. Show me where, Lord, you have placed me to be a blessing to others. And show me which gifts, skills, and abilities that you've uniquely equipped me with, Lord, to be able to serve you. May it be so for your namesake. Amen. I'm just going to hand over to William in a minute, but Katie reminded me that it's Giving Tuesday in 10 days' time. It's a global movement that sort of came out of or was a response to the Black Friday commercialism that, of course, we, we, we hear all about um, with shopping. Giving Tuesday is an opportunity to be involved in something, to, 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 to give. Well, of course, we've also been reminded this morning um, of, uh, of the opportunity or the, 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 the deal that we're now part of to, um, to purchase this new property. So if God's been nudging you, I ask that you'd go and pray with somebody um, and, uh, and see if that nudge turns into action. Thank you very much.